Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 65, I chat with John Iverson about the changing world of media distribution. So stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Home Theater Geeks is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded May 9th, 2011, episode 65, Gently Down the Media Stream. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by Hover.com, domain name registration and management that's simple. For Hover's transfer concierge service free for our audience, go to Hover.com slash HTG, offer code H. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. This week's guest geek is a return geek, John Iverson, web monkey for the home entertainment group of Source Interlink Media, the company that publishes UltimateAVMag.com, HomeTheater.com, and Stereophile.com, among others. Hey, John, welcome back to the show. Hey, Scott. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Those who are tuned into the uh, live video stream at live.twit.tv or to, uh, logged into the chat room at irc.twit.tv, can post questions for John as we talk, and I'll pass on as many as I can. The subject for today is streaming versus physical media. John and I, in our communication, in our work, uh, talk about this quite a bit, and he's got a lot of interesting things to say about uh, the new distribution paradigm and how that is changing the uh, media landscape for all of us, really. So... Um, John, we were talking about this really as a digital content revolution. We're, we're in, in the middle of something really big here, aren't we? Yes. No, in fact, uh, I think we'll look back in 10 years from now, we'll look back at this and think, wow, that was quite interesting. And then, of course, in 10 years, we'll uh, either be happy with how it turned out or maybe not so happy. That we'll have to find out. <laughs> as, as my wife's grandmother used to say, live a little longer, you find out. Yeah, and I guess. well, and, and who, who knows if it's going to actually settle at any point. You know, I keep thinking that it's going to settle and something new comes up and it changes. So it's, it's been interesting to watch at least. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of different aspects to this that I want to touch on with you. One is um, actual streaming content coming in to the home over the Internet. And the other is digitizing your physical media and putting them on a server. And, and I say this particularly because... In the video, those of you who are watching the video can see uh, that John is in his studio and he is framed very beautifully by a bunch of CDs hanging from the wall, <laughs> from the ceiling, uh -huh. rather. Yeah, and, we call uh, the CD, CD heaven. That's where CDs go to die after they've been put into the music <laughs> server. In I fact, here, just, can you see this? You can see, the whole ceiling is covered with these things. I, you know, I've been, I've been to your house. I've been in that room and it's just an amazing uh, effect, visual effect of these CDs slowly turning in the, uh, in the uh, air conditioning, you know, or the, when the windows open and it just, 
It's just gorgeous. But uh, obviously, they're up there. They're not in your collection. They're not in uh, in a CD rack. Um, so how how does that work? Well, you know, a few years ago, um, I reviewed products for Stereophile, and one of the products that they assigned me was the Sulu's music server. Um, and uh, Sulu's is spelled S-O-O-L-O-O-S, which a lot mm -hmm. of people miss. Anyways, the, the music server was an interesting product, and it had uh, the ability to take your CDs. You put your CDs into it, it absorbs them at full bandwidth. It doesn't compress anything and uh, stores everything as FLAC files. We started feeding CDs in, and we feeded some more CDs in. Uh, you know, one thing led to another, and pretty soon we've already got six or 7,000 CDs in the thing. And uh, I bought the system. I actually went ahead and bought the system. I've got about uh, 12 terabytes of hard drive space to store stuff on. And oh, my God. Kind of 12 a terabytes yeah. only for audio? This is only for audio. But keep in mind that with something like Sulus or any of the higher-end systems, you don't want anything compressed. So we're ripping these CDs uh, with FLAC files, F-L-A-C, FLAC. Mm. which means that uh, they do, it's a lossless compression system, which means it does reduce the amount of space that it takes, but it doesn't inhibit the or, or compress the actual digital, digital data. And, uh, and recently I've been downloading high resolution tracks from hdtracks.com. And so I've been able to get, uh, you know, high definition copies of a bunch of uh, albums that they're releasing and download them as FLAC files, uh, you know, 24 bit, 96 kilohertz and so forth, and then put mm. them up onto the server. So that takes, of course, more space. But if you've got, uh, I, mean, I mean, how much does it cost? It's less than 100 bucks per terabyte. In fact, I got some two terabyte drives that I put up, and they were, I, if I remember right, 120 bucks each. So the space, <laughs> you know, the space is not. That's not what's expensive. It's it's your material and sourcing and what you put on there. And and you know, I've bought thousands of CDs over the years, as well as uh, you know, thousands of LPs before that, and so forth. So. Uh, at this point now, downloading music off the internet, uh, there's a lot of uh, choices for higher resolution music. Not everything, but HD tracks is a good choice. Uh, Lynn Records has some options, so you can I fill think, your uh, server up pretty well. PNW does does as well, and there's iTracks.com is another one. 2L, if you're interested in Norwegian music, I think they specialize almost exclusively in Norwegian sourced music bands and so on. Uh, yeah. But you're right, there are several places uh, that you can now go to get even higher quality than CD. Yeah, and I think that for an audiophile, you know, myself, I've been in music business for so long, and, and so I look for the higher resolution, the better sounding recordings. So I've, I'm one of those people that's got, you know, six versions of a particular album because I'm looking for the one that sounds the best. So for example, I mean, it's kind of a guilty pleasure, but on HD tracks, they just got Rush's uh, album Moving Pictures, which has, you know, some people hate or love Rush, but nonetheless, I've, I had the Mobile Fidelity version of it, I had the original release, I had the LP, and now I've just downloaded the HD Tracks 24-bit 96 version, which, in fact, does sound better than the CD, so I'm, I'm pleased about that. So, you know, you kind of just keep collecting, looking for a better sounding source. Now, does the... Um, uh, one question I often ask audiophiles is, how... How important is the audio playback system? And we're a little off the subject here, but I'll just take a little aside for a moment. Uh, how important is the quality of the playback system in hearing differences between a CD, an LP, a 2496 uh, audio file that you've downloaded? I know you've got a pretty, pretty nice audio system. Yeah, but you know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is these differences, especially when you get to the more subtle di differences in digital masterings, 
a lot of it comes down to learning what that difference is. You train yourself to hear it. Once you hear it, you can hear it pretty repeatedly. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of can get a little messed up with, you know, audiophiles and thinking, these guys are crazy. They're imagining they're hearing these things. You know, in some cases that might be true, but I'll tell you, you listen to two DACs or even two cables. I mean, that's the most controversial thing in the world is, a, you know, a pair of interconnects. And if, once, if there's a difference, once you figure out what that difference is and you hear it, from there on in, you can lock into it. It's kind of like when you see a flaw, you buy a new car and all of a sudden there's a little door ding in it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, somebody walking up to your car would never see that door ding. But when you walk up to your car, all you see is that door ding. And, and the same thing happens with high-end digital files is once, once you've figured out what that difference is, you know, I'm, re- I'm reviewing DACs, uh, digital audio converters, the little thing that converts the digital signal to the audio signal, uh, analog signal for your preamp or receiver. Yeah, DAC, digital to analog converter. Yeah, a DAC. And, you know, DACs all sound, to a certain extent, they all sound the same. I mean, they're all, if they all do a good job and they do what they're supposed to do, they're all going to sound the same. But what's interesting is when you find a track that you really, it's a well-recorded track, you listen to it, you compare a couple DACs, you go back and forth, you listen to that track 10, 20 times, all of a sudden you'll hear a difference in most cases. And once you hear that difference, you know, it's the classic, well, audiophiles need to do blind testing. Well, you know, I can shut my eyes and somebody can switch them and you can hear it. But the key is, you know, number one, does it matter to you that you have to do that work to hear the difference? A lot of people will say no, but still, that doesn't discount the fact that that difference will be there. And it's just a matter of kind of learning how to spot it. And once you do, uh, it's pretty easy to replicate that. I must admit, it's very much like uh, when I go to the movies now and I, I go to a film presentation versus a digital presentation, the film presentation will show uh, what's called a real change marker up in the upper right corner, typically, a little black circle that just pops up there for a second and then it's gone and then pops up there again and then the real change and the scene changes. Once you see that, you can't not see it. Same thing goes with DLP, single chip DLP projectors with the rainbow effect. Once you know how to see it, you can't not see it. It's kind of annoying, actually. I wish, I wish in a way that I didn't know how to look for those things. Well, you know, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, we're getting a little off track. Your question was, you know, the, the higher end system for listening to these differences. But I think what you're pointing out is, you know, from a human behavioral point of view, our brains are such yeah. that once we, de- once we detect that difference, regardless of what the system is, then our brain is conditioned to, uh, you know, to be able to focus in on it more easily. And, and a higher end system certainly helps. I mean, you know, your original question again, once again, was the, do you need a higher end system for this kind of thing? And it helps, but it's not what's necessary. What's interesting is, you know, when I was an audio retailer years ago, we had a high end audio store and we'd get customers who would come in that uh, said, you know, my hearing's not really good anymore. So, I don't need high-end speakers. I don't need a. I don't need to spend a lot of money. I don't need a high-end system. What it turns out, though, is is that your brain creates a frame of reference. So even a person who thinks they can't hear very well, they're older, their hearing is damaged, they can still hear the difference between a high-end pair of speakers and an average pair of speakers. They didn't think they could, but in fact, they can because your brain kind of adjusts and compensates mm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Fills in the blanks, if you will. Yeah. So I would say that for anybody that really wants to pursue this high-end sound thing if they want to start listening. Don't get fixed, you know, don't worry too much about what system you've got or how much money you've spent on your speakers. You know, I think the thing is learn what that system can do and then start seeing if you can hear the differences and doing comparing. I think setting up your comparisons and your tests maybe in fact might be more important in some cases than the environment. You know, but I will say this though, 
in my own home, in my own system that I've gotten very, very uh, familiar with, I can do these tests much more quickly, more accurately. If I go into somebody else's house or system, it takes a while to orient. Once again, I've got to walk around that car until I see that door ding. Mm-hmm. But then when I, when I finally see it, you know, I get the light just right and I see it, or in their system's case, I find the right place to sit and I hear it, then it's pretty much, it's there all the time for me. So I think that's, you know, that's a key. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting back to the topic at hand, uh, I do have a bunch of comments in the chat room already. <laughs> uh, yeah, did I, I mentioned cables, right? That's what did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, no, at, at the moment, I'm looking at the, all, the, uh, all the comments in the chat room that are saying, are those all AOL discs? <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of them are, actually. But another question. I, I, I'm sure there are some, yeah. Uh, another, another more relevant question is, are there some SACDs up there? Oh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, and this brings up the, a question I was going to ask you, which is you've imported CDs into your Sulu system. You've, Im, you've brought in high-res. Uh, yeah. do you, have you imported SACDs or DVD audios, for that matter, with the higher resolution from physical media into your, into your Sulu server? Yeah, in fact, uh, as a matter of fact, let me start with DVD audio discs first, because those are actually pretty easy to do. Um, there was a program I found online called DVD Explorer. I may have that wrong. It might be DVD A Explorer. Uh, but anyways, um, it's a software program. It's a, it's a PC-only program. It, they've got a Mac version that doesn't work very well. So I've got a Mac, but I put a, you know, I could boot into Windows 7. So you download DVD Explorer, you put your DVD audio disc in, and then it allows you to rip the DVD audio tracks only in two-channel or multi-channel and at the different resolutions. So once you kind of get familiar with that, uh, I was able to then, for example, I've got the whole Doors, you know, box six discs box set that had all the DVD audios, and I wanted those high-resolution uh, tracks because they actually were mixed differently than the uh, original release, and so they had remixed them for that track. So, you know, being a Doors completist, I had to have both versions on the Sulus, and until I found this uh, DVD Explorer uh, program, I had trouble figuring out how to do that. So, so it allows you to do that. Now, SACD is tougher because there is no program that will take an SACD and convert it to something that will go straight into something like the, the Sulus server. So I've seen people who will output the SACD uh, from, say, like an Oppo player, using mm-hmm. the anal- analog outs and then resample it at a high sampling rate. I've seen that those kind of hacks. Um, wow. I, yeah, myself, I haven't done it. Actually, you know, what's interesting is HD Tracks now has just re-released all the Rolling Stones um, high-resolution masters. They originally mastered those for SACD, and I had the complete SACD set, but I could not put those high-resolution discs onto the server because Sulu's can't rip an SACD. So... You know, I put the CD layer, but I could never get the high res. So now HD Tracks is starting to make the high res available. Um, and actually, another interesting thing is Apple uh, Records, not Apple Computer, Apple Records, when they re-released all the Beatles uh, information, they released all the Beatles discs, the stereo uh, releases as a... Um, do you remember the little metal Apple that had a USB stick in the top of it? Uh, in fact, I've got one if you need to see it. But um, Yeah, I, what, I don't remember that. If you have it handy... Let's, let's uh, it's, in the, it's, in, it's, it's in the closet. I, um, oh, well, never here. mind then. <laughs> Are you sure? Well, you, can okay. take, you can take us along. Yeah, exactly. Give us a little tour uh, of, of your place there. Well, okay. So let's go see if I'll find it. The thing is, I've got it. I'll tell you what. I've got it boxed up. So maybe we'll do that later if, if people right. really need to see it. But the point is, is that Apple released uh, the Beatles Masters as 24-bit, 44K files on this USB stick. 
So the USB stick, I was able to put that in my computer. Those, they had them, everything stored as FLAC files, and then I moved all the FLAC files over to the Sulus. So, uh, you know, that's you kind of go through hoops to do it right now, and there's copyright issues. SACD, of course, they were so proud of the fact that it was a, uh, you know, a pretty locked-down format. But at the time, my big protest, and I wrote a few stories about this, was, yeah, you've locked it down, but now you've made the, the format less portable, meaning that I can't take that format and use it where I want to use it, such as a music server on my iPod and so forth. So I consider that to be a fatal flaw in that particular format. Although sonically, you know, you can argue the merits of how wonderful the thing sounds, but if it doesn't have portability these days, it's kind of a, it's kind of a dead format from the beginning. And that's really one of the main topics that I wanted to talk about today with you was the benefits of this new paradigm of digital files on a server coming in, however they're going to come in, and how portable they or not they are. I mean, one issue, of course, is copy protection, copyright protection. And yeah, I like to call it. I like to call it a copy restriction, really, because it's you know, I'm a user. I'm not the record company, so for me, it's a restriction, not a protection. But you're also you're also a musician and a recording artist, and you have released at least one CD. Don't you want your material to be protected from uh, from theft? Don't you want to make a profit on it? You know, it's it's funny you mentioned. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but uh, yeah, I released an album on a uh, label, MA Recordings, which was an audiophile label, a few years back, and it's a smaller label. And you know, quite frankly, this is not an album that's going to you know burn up the world. But I started noticing that the album was showing up for free as MP3 files on Russian music servers pretty consistently. And so if you typed in the name of the album, you would see 100 listings for free MP3 files on Russian servers. And then you'd see the Amazon.com listing, the record label and so forth. But most of the activity and most of the people contacting me about the album clearly were sourcing this through the MP3 files off the Russian and, you know, the free music servers and so forth. And to tell you the truth, it's not the kind of album where I'm going to make a lot of money and I don't see that as my main source of income. So I said, you know, I'm tired of people getting this album, which was recorded so carefully and picking it up as an mp3 file which which didn't really sound that great so i went ahead and uh, took the master tape and coded them all to all the songs to flac files uh, carefully labeled them added the metadata and then i created a uh, website where you can download those for free and that way if you're going to grab the files you can grab the high resolution straight from the master versions of the files and that's been doing pretty well so i guess my personal reaction as a musician is to, uh, you know, to look at the quality issue and say, what can we do to bypass the fact that the record companies really aren't making a great effort to put quality out there in a way that people will download or be willing to pay for? I mean, this is a whole other topic if we want to talk about it. You know, why has the music industry created these barriers, artificial barriers, and why is it that you can't, say, go online and buy a Beatles album at full CD resolution for a reasonable price? I mean, you still can't do that today. It's it's ridiculous, and so. I thought I thought uh, I thought the Beatles collection was finally available. I guess that's on iTunes in a, a lossy compressed format, though, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a compressed format. So, for example, you know, the album that I released, uh, I was really proud of the sound quality. In fact, Stereophile gave it a record to die for rating one year. You know, in terms of sound quality, so an MP3 file is kind of antithetical to what I was trying to do. So, uh, the options to release it as a high resolution file basically require me to find a licensing service. You know, these these download, the legitimate download services require you to uh, sign up with a publishing company and go through these different publishing channels, which means that a percentage of whatever they charge to download it goes to somebody else. And really, 
you know, at the end of the day, musicians don't make a lot of money from that. And, and that's a whole other can of worms we could get into. But, yeah. you know, who makes who makes the money from those downloads? Is, are the record labels really paying the musicians and so forth and so on? In my case, quite frankly, I wasn't really getting any money from the record label. So I thought I had full rights to my music. I reserved the complete rights. There was no copyright issues. I checked with the, the record company and I said, you know, forget this, this whole crazy channel and they're going to sell maybe just a few copies at $14 each. I'm just going to put it up there and the people that want it can get it. Now, of course, not every musician is going to feel that way. They're going to feel as though this is their career and they, they need to take a different path. I'm just giving you my example here. Sure. But how does, how does MA Records feel about you giving away the music? Um, they didn't, Todd, Todd, the fellow who runs it, he didn't really say much about it. I, uh, I'm imagining that it's the kind of thing that if I was a hot seller and a big source of income for them, maybe it's a different story. So <laughs> perhaps perhaps it's lucky that my album is, is focused at a pretty tight niche in the world. Right, exactly. Uh, this, whole, this whole digital content revolution that we're talking about, um, <laughs> copy, copy restriction aside, uh, I believe you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's great for consumers uh, but how great is it for providers? We, we've start, sort of started to touch on that here, but uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, well, there's there's two sides to this coin. There's the music provider, and in this, you know, in this modern world, largely represented by the major record labels, but I think that's changing, so we could argue that that's, that's the old thing, and maybe we don't need to talk about that so much anymore. But anyways, the content owners, the providers, and then us as the users now, you know, what we're looking for is a convenient way to download or use the music or purchase however we want at a reason, what we consider to be a reasonable price. And the record content providers, of course, want to control that distribution so that they can, uh, you know, get a percentage based on whatever arrangement they have on each copy that's sold or mm -hmm. uh, downloaded. And uh, I think the problem is, is that the record labels, of course, have been way, way, way behind on where the public has gone in terms of how they use and download their music. And so the record industry is still trying to create these artificial scarcities and they're trying to control pricing and so forth and distribution, whereas the actual technology has moved way beyond that. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the record industry is the railway and all of a sudden freeways and cars showed up and they're still trying to make us buy everything at the rail station off the rail cars it pulls up to the station every you know on a schedule whereas we get in a car we just go wherever we want we do whatever we want we don't even need to go to the station and i'm not sure how well that metaphor holds up actually but it just kind of came <laughs> i think it holds it just, up pretty good actually it, it kind of came to mind but the point being though is that uh you know the record labels and this is this is nothing new i think probably everybody that's listening has heard this story a hundred times you know napster happened the record labels instead of embracing it and doing it one better basically tried to turn back the clock which as we know in technology you're doomed to fail and it's futile so, yeah absolutely yeah so we're we're in a period where you know, my personal view is music pricing online is outrageously high, and I think that's the key to the problem. I think it's literally what we call a price elasticity issue, which is, you know, 10 to $12 for an album, or in, you know, the case of a high-definition download, you know, $14, $20. Mm -hmm. I think the public is wise enough to recognize that right now what you're buying from the label is the somewhat minimal distribution costs, but there's the rights. There's, you know, the contract, uh, the rights that people pay for. But in the old days, when you bought a CD, you recognized that they had to make this physical thing. They had to move it. They had to put it in the store. The store had to stock it. There was all that involved. The public knows that that's not all involved anymore. But yet the pricing hasn't changed. And I, so I think that instinctually, we know that there is something wrong with the, the economic equation. And so 
you know, sure, there's a lot of people who just like stuff for free, but quite frankly, I can't find most of the stuff I want online to download at any price. So I can go to Amazon, and now Amazon, you can find CDs for a penny, a dollar, a lot of stuff. I mean, I've, I've bought more CDs. You, you, mean, you mean physical C CDs? Physical CDs. I'm talking about how to get the music. So I'll get, to, I'll get to the streaming thing in a second. So I'm finding that what I'm doing to get the music I want is I go to Amazon, I buy it for a penny or a dollar, I rip it into the Sulus, because I can't go someplace online to buy that at full resolution at any price. Now, if it was available for full, full resolution at $12 as a download, I'd still want to go to Amazon and buy the CD for a penny. I mean, who wouldn't? Mm -hmm. So, you know, at some ways, the example of what Amazon pricing has ended up at, if you look at the pricing on Amazon for tons of stuff, now music, um, there's so much available for under 4 and $5. And I think that's where online download pricing needs to be for a full resolution, full album, uh, you know, or a particular track, you know, let's get down to 10 and 20 cents per track, let's get down to two bucks for an album, and watch the record labels end up, in a sense, becoming a friend of the consumer. At the same time, you're going to find people like myself and even people not so much into music, I believe, are going to start filling in their collections with stuff that they're not so sure about, that they're not going to spend a lot of money on. You know, so there's there's two parts of this. One is having a place where these files are all available, because right now there's still a lot you can't get it online on iTunes or anywhere else. But then the second part is pricing it in such a way that you don't end up people don't feel ripped off when they're buying, you know, a low resolution version of something for twelve bucks, which you know after a while you're going to start feeling as though you're taking advantage of. And I think that it's a dead end street. So uh, you know, the two components here is I think they've got to do a much better job of figuring out how to distribute full resolution masters actually any resolution that people want. So you can have an MP3, a full resolution or high resolution, and then price it at a price that makes it almost silly to, to try to find it through a pirate or to you know purchase a physical media. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that sounds great. What's keeping the record labels from doing that? Just inertia, um, old school I, thinking? I was just thinking, you know, now that I've said that, I probably every record label that's ever sent me a promo copy has just cut me off just right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, I think uh, sorry, I've been ahead. in radio. I've been in radio for you know since wait since the late seventies. I've been in uh, DJ and radio, so I ended up getting a lot of promo copies of things. And uh, you know, it's well, it'll be interesting. But you know, can the you know the the record labels are kind of in a tight spot in the sense that they built this model, uh, and they're trying to enforce this model online based on the old way of doing things. And they've got to take almost like a huge step sideways and start over again and uh, start from, in a sense, you know, an empty room with, with 40 guys who aren't invested with the record labels problems and, be, and basically given the brief of you 40 guys create a distribution system that can distri distribute all resolutions of music, that we can put a payment system on this that's at a reasonable cost, make it really easy, transparent, make it fun. And, you know, we'll come up with a pricing scheme then that will, in a sense, make it so that people don't even want to get out of bed and look at a pirate stream anymore because it's going to be so easy to find what you want. And when you find it, it's at a price that, you know, it's a no-brainer. Two bucks, I'll buy that album. Two bucks, I'll buy all the Stones albums just because I don't know which ones I like, but I'll buy them all because they're two bucks each. And right. I think, I think the, the price elasticity, maybe somebody in a record company somewhere knows what the price elasticity is and, and that $2 record you know, might net them less money. My instinct is no, that $2 record is going to net them far more money in the long run, especially because people aren't going to be inclined to do the hard, and it's hard work, 
to go find that CD and rip it or find a friend that's got it or all those things you have to do to find it. If you can get anything you want and it's at a reasonable price, the whole world would change as far as our online music distribution. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I hope the, the record companies are listening because uh, maybe somebody at one of them will, will take your comments to heart and, uh, and do the right thing. Well, you know, honestly, this is not a new idea. I mean, these are things I've heard other people saying for the last 10 years, but... Yeah, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I don't want to try to represent the record labels because I'm not a record label, but I know they've got their side of the story. I know part of it is just old, older thinking, just thinking, uh, you know, in the old school way. And, and I mean, let's face it, they were able to control distribution for years. I mean, they were creating artificial scarcity. You couldn't buy an LP unless they pressed it. And... It was economically unfeasible to press your own LP, to press a vinyl record. So, you know, the fact that you had to buy it from the stores they distributed in at the price they put it at, uh, you know, they controlled that distribution. CDs, same thing. But as soon as CD burners came out, as soon as cassette tapes came out, people were starting to be able to control distribution a little bit on their own. You could go to your friend's room in the dorm and, you know, in my day, you could make a cassette copy of the LP or now, you know, you could grab a copy off his hard drive. Uh, so in principle, that hasn't changed. It just gets easier and easier and easier. Mm -hmm. So the record labels need to get on top of that and stay ahead of it. Making, in other words, make it so attractive to purchase something at a reasonable price that you don't. You know, that's the easiest thing to do. And uh, if they can make that the easiest thing to do, you know, ninety percent of the piracy problem, in my opinion, goes away just like that. Right, and they start making more money in in volume. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what it is. Turn up the volume. I mean, you're still going to have people <laughs> who, are gonna... so to speak. You know, you're still going to have people who are going to copy each other's hard drives and so forth. But when it comes down to it, it's so much easier if you can go online anywhere in the world and any album you want, you can just find it and download it at the resolution you want for a buck or two. And let's face it, you know, here you want to get the record labels upset. Do we really even need record labels for that? I mean, I'm an artist. I've got my album online for free. But if there was some place I could go that wasn't trying to take a percentage out of and charge too much for my album, you know, if this distribution method existed, I would sign up for it in a heartbeat. And, you know, the record label there maybe is there to help you promote your, the record label, buy ads and put in magazines or help you with the budget to record it. But that is so not important increasingly as we go on. In other words, people are able to record uh, with their own equipment. Uh, people are able to promote through a clever YouTube video or through uh, social networking. The record label's reason for existing becomes more and more tenuous over time, and so mm. you see record you see record labels essentially trying to come up with, you know, what they describe as 360 deals, which is when you sign an artist now you want to control their their not only their product and their music, but you want to control their performance, their concerts, because that's where musicians can really make the money. Is you get a you get an audience online in love with your music and then you perform in your local town you monetize when they come to your see your performance you can sell them t-shirts you can sell them special edition you know copies of photos or whatever but mm -hmm. the fact is music maybe maybe really in the future music is going to be the calling card and the payoff is going to be in the performance and the actual uh, tangible product that the artist provides directly to the fan mm. certainly there Would is be a nice. difference be there is a difference between uh, live performance and recorded music, and I'd like to talk about that perhaps in just a moment. But before I do, uh, I'd like to take a moment to thank one of our uh, sponsors for this episode, uh, Netflix, which delivers movies directly to your home and saves you time, money, and hassle. We've been talking about streaming um, audio into your home, but certainly video is in much the same boat. Uh, with Netflix, <clears throat> you can stream directly to your PC or Mac, 
or stream directly to your TV uh, with a directly into the TV or through, uh, say, your Blu-ray player, most of which uh, have, now have Netflix streaming. Also game consoles, say Xbox, PS3, Nintendo Wii. And if you really are interested in uh, physical media, prefer that, you can get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day. Uh, and you can watch these movies as many times as you want, anytime you want, no late fees, no due dates. Uh, certainly this spells the end of brick and mortar stores as we're already starting to see. Um, <clears throat> John, in fact, uh, I, I like to recommend a Netflix streaming uh, title every uh, in every ad, and uh, I believe you recently saw one uh, of uh, a documentary of the Rolling Stones. Oh yeah! In fact, one thing you didn't mention was uh, here we we stream Netflix on our iPads actually. So uh, there was a Rolling Stones documentary, and you know what? Do you remember? Uh, oh, how did you do there that? There it is. Yeah, <laughs> Stones in Exile. <laughs> So yeah, so I, I watched that last week. Actually, it was quite interesting. We were just speaking of the Rolling Stones because the uh, Rolling Stones have been reissued now as high definition. And so the Rolling Stones have been playing a lot in our house. And so that particular album has been remastered and re-released. And, uh, you know, the, the new remastering of that album, by the way, is quite controversial. But one thing led to another. We ended up on Netflix finding this documentary. And it was great just to sit and watch it on the iPad because the whole point there was not a big home theater experience. The point was I was just fascinated with the story. And it was a great present. It was a great presentation that way. Yeah, that's so cool. You could instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free free trial membership by going to netflix.com/twit. So be sure to sign up for that free 30-day trial at netflix.com/twit. So um, let's see. We were talking about oh yeah the live difference between live and um, and recorded music and certainly I, I agree with you that live performance is something that will always be an added uh, feature an added attraction uh, as opposed to uh, recorded music in fact there is an old audiophile argument about whether or not recorded music can actually replicate the live experience I tend to think not what do you think you well, know, you know, it's almost like a philosophical question, right? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the, the the thing is, is is that really what you want to do? Uh, there were so many albums that were recorded in the studio and performed and took advantage of what the studio had to offer. And so the recording is not a document of a live performance. It's a document of a creation of several live performances, you know, uh, manipulated together, effects added mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to that extent, uh, you know, the classic that everybody rolls out is is the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. I mean, that's that's not an album that can be reproduced live by four guys on a stage. But, Although there uh, are plenty of plenty of uh, Beatles cover bands who try. <laughs> yeah, well, but, you know, the Beatles themselves, of course, never tried. So, right, uh, right. as far as I know, anyway. So it was one of those things that, uh, you know, that album is the document. It is the performance, so to speak. I and mean, that's right. the key thing to understand is that album, that document is the performance. And quite frankly, you know, artists die and Elvis Presley. Now what we have left are his documents, his, his movies and his, you know, music. And those are the performances that we can play back. So finding ways to play back those performances as faithfully as possible and, and perhaps in as high fidelity as possible. You know, for someone like myself, who's a music lover and a musician, I want to get as close as I can to, in a sense, the, the actuality of the, the, the product or the, that performance, whether it's recorded or just documenting a live performance. And so I find that my 
my quest for audiophile sound is one of trying to get closer to that performance and to that experience. And mm -hmm. uh, and I found over the years that you know once you are able to figure out how to do that, it's quite satisfying. I just want to let you know that um, uh, Selig Five in the chat room is downloading Alternesia right now as we speak. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I wasn't. Gonna, might... I was. I wasn't going to plug it, but by name. But I guess somebody figured it out then. No, no, you should definitely plug it by name. Alternesia, uh, I guess a combination of alternate and amnesia, uh, and well, uh, it's. Sorry, actually, how'd, no, how'd you come up with that title? No, no, a friend of mine came up with it, but it's uh, what I did was I spent some time in Indonesia and in Bali in particular and learned gamelan music. So, in fact, I'll pan the screen over. I don't know if this works, but you see, for example, there's some gamelan instruments. Can oh, you yeah. see that? Mm -hmm. Yep. All right, and then and then behind me, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on the wall. I don't know if this really works on live video, but so uh, I recorded an album of you know what I tend to call a Western guy's uh, reinterpretation of of Balinese gamelan music, and so a friend of mine came up with the name Alternesia as an alternate ah. version of Indonesian music. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And I've I've actually heard it. I've listened to it several times. It is very good. So I recommend anybody in the chat room. Who uh, who is curious about that to uh, check it out? In fact, yeah, Poindexter put put the uh, website up www.alternesia.com/download.html. So anybody yeah, who wants to it download easy. it, uh, John Iverson has graciously made it available in uh, in high resolution for free for downloading, which is quite remarkable, I think. Um, well, I love the I love the comment that you uh, have made to me several times. And I'd love for you to expound on it a bit. The mass market selects, the audiophiles perfect. Yeah, I mean, what that's referring to is I've noticed through history that, you know, audiophiles kind of have a mixed reputation. But um, typically, you know, the mass market will pick a medium for music. For example, LP records or then CDs or now downloads. And what happens is audiophiles then set upon perfecting that medium and making it work. And it always works that way. It doesn't work the other way. In other words, you know, audiophiles came up with SACD or DVD audio, but the mass market didn't embrace it just because we came up with it and said it sounded better. That's not the way it works. What happens is the mass market says, you know what, we really like downloads. We like this whole internet thing. Forget, you know, physical media. We like being able to download anything we want onto our phone, onto our laptop, onto our iPad. So audiophiles job now at this point is to find a way to make that process uh, sound better to make it um, higher resolution, and in fact, that's what's happening. You know, pretty much. I, I started talking about this probably more than ten years ago, and at the time, we were just starting to see uh, MP3 downloads, and that was pretty much it. But since then, as we mentioned earlier, HD Tracks and several other companies have been putting together high resolution download sites. In a sense, it's the audiophile version of something like iTunes, and I think we'll see more of that. I think eventually, iTunes is going to have to start offering high-resolution downloads, and as we move on to, say, yet another platform, the, the process will repeat itself. And the same thing, I imagine, will happen also with video, with what we, we're talking about, Netflix, um, you know, seeing higher and higher resolution video become available for download and streaming. Um, that, of course, though, requires uh, more bandwidth than most American homes, anyway, typically have coming in. Even high-res audio uh, certainly downloading bandwidth doesn't matter that much either way because you just wait till it's downloaded and then you play it. But in the case of video, very often we have streaming. We have we don't have local storage. Um, and so I'm wondering how you if you have any thoughts on that subject. 
Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Differentiating between downloading and streaming is really important because downloading, what I was describing earlier about downloading FLAC files, for example, mm -hmm. like on my site, alternesia.com, when you download that FLAC file, you're not streaming it, listening to it live. What you do is you put that file on your computer, on your hard drive, and you know store it wherever you want. Um, by the way, that brings up a whole other topic, which maybe we want to get into, which is the whole cloud storage thing, which is just now happening, uh, you know, in ah, the music yes. business. Please, but, go right but let's ahead. go ahead. And, well, let's go ahead and finish off this topic, though. So, okay, sure. So, so that's downloading. I mean, streaming would be, for example, something like Pandora, where you tune in and they stream you a fixed stream. Um, you don't get like to store inter it. Internet radio is an example of streaming audio. Right. So you don't get you can start and stop it, but you don't get to store it or take it offline and move it around with you. So it's less portable in that sense. Now, video has the same situation. So think about it this way. You know, I've got a DirecTV dish, for example. And in some ways, what I'm doing is I'm downloading an HD movie. Of course, it's not in the same resolution as Blu-ray, but that's the modern equivalent of being able to download and store. I mean, it does exist. The fact is, though, I have a Netflix account, I admit it, and you know what we do is we rent Blu-ray discs on Netflix that we watch because I have a nice home theater and you know you don't even really need a great home theater to appreciate Blu-ray discs, it's quality. There is no place I can go and download that exact same quality with the same quality audio track, you know, the special features and so forth mm -hmm. in, a in a reasonable manner because if there was, if Netflix offered it, I'd be doing that. I wouldn't be putting the postal service to work trying to you know, move the physical stuff around. The stuff we stream onto the iPad and we stream onto our TV, quite frankly, it's, it's not that great looking. Uh, and uh, so we don't put that on the big screen, but we do stream it to the iPad. Like that Rolling Stones disc, it's a great thing to watch on the iPad because quality is not its you know, forte in that particular movie in terms of vi video image quality. But right. when it comes to a movie uh, that does have great video quality, you know, something like Inception where you want, or Avatar, where you're going to want to get that big immersive experience, Blu-ray disc is still the number one distribution medium for high-resolution video and audio because, quite mm -hmm. frankly, a lot of the video you can download still, even if it's considered, you know, quote-unquote high-resolution, and, you know, there's some debate about whether, for example, Apple's HD is really high-definition, but it still doesn't come with the same quality audio track, not that I've seen anywhere. And so, you know, I think we still have some ways to go, but... The principle still holds true, which is people want that. I think eventually you're going to see somebody figure out how to download a movie, uh, you know, at Blu-ray quality with that full audio. Maybe it might take a couple years, and then you'll have an Oppo player that you can download it onto, and you could watch it play. You could pay them twelve dollars. You've got that player. You can put it on your hard drive. I think that's mm -hmm. coming. It's just the movie studios. I think watched and saw what happened to the music industry. So they've been a little bit more hesitant to, uh, you know, open up some of those distribution channels. In fact, as you know, Netflix is having constant struggles as, as well as the cable distributors and so forth, trying to get the music or the, the movie studios rather and the, the networks to allow them to freely distribute their content in a bunch of different ways. It's, it's really all wrapped up in a lot of lawsuits and, you know, contracts at this point. But, you know, ultimately... The physical medium, if if the online medium can catch up in some fashion, which I believe it always will at some point, mm -hmm. then the physical medium is you know is doomed. And in my own life, I've tried to completely convert my music library uh, to uh, music server use because, quite frankly, it's a much better library to use as a musician and as a music lover. All of a sudden, there's opportunities of using that library to me that aren't available. When I'm struggling with uh, you know thousands of discs, and I don't know if you can see in the back behind me, and there's a closet full, filled with about 10,000 LP records. LP. Maybe you can't really, 
LPs, yeah. And, you know, I love my LP records, and it doesn't look like it's showing up. But anyways, the point being, though, is, you know, I love those records. I'm not selling them. I'm, I've got a high-end turntable. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like getting on the, the Sulus and being able to say, how many versions of, of a particular song from the Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter, do we have? lining them all up and listening to them and talking about them. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, everybody in the room's a DJ and they're pulling music up and we're talking about music and music becomes the center focal point of the conversation. That didn't happen when I had a thousand CDs sitting on the, on the wall or, you know, when I've got the records in the room. It's, it's a whole different thing and I can't go back, I'll tell you. And so I would say the same thing in terms of video. I'd like to see that happen. Uh, you know, video is a different experience. We don't experience it the same way as audio, but if I could have a high-definition version of Inception sitting there on my uh, music server, or my video server, media server, and I could pull that out when I wanted to uh, show somebody a scene or get them involved in the movie, uh, that would be a great thing. And, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't exist quite yet. Yeah, not quite yet. Yeah, uh, quite yet. One, other, one other thing I want to ask you about uh, vinyl in just a second, but uh, before I do, I want to thank our other sponsor for this episode, uh, Hover.com. Uh, it's a domain... Uh, registration service made simple. Doesn't sell a ton of services. They focus on making it easy to register and manage domains and email. And they have a new no-hold policy for customer service calls. Dig this. Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, when you call, you get a live person. You don't get put on hold. How many companies can say that? Uh, and here's an exclusive for the Twit audience, a free transfer concierge service. Hover is offering Twit audience members free domain transfer, no matter how many domain names you have. It's a $25 service on the site. Just call Hover, give them your username and password, and they'll take it from there. Hover will get you the authorization codes, deal with the emails, let you know when your domains are on Hover, and working exactly as you want them to. The transfer itself is $10 per domain name, and this extends the domain one year beyond its current registration date. Uh, for the Twit audience, Hover will... Hover <laughs> will handle the whole hassle of the transfer for you at no additional cost. To get Hover's free transfer concierge service, call Hover's customer service number listed on their website. That's Hover.com. And if you need a new domain, get 10% off by going to um, uh, htg.hover.com, uh, I think, <laughs> and use the offer code HTG. So... Um, I wanted to ask you about vinyl. You, you and I were talking a little bit earlier today, uh, John Iverson, about vinyl digitization. You've got 10,000 vinyl records. Have you digitized them all? Uh, well, no. You know, in fact, um, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. You were asking me, do I digitize that? Uh, I don't. I try, because I have the vinyl, I listen to it, and quite frankly, I've... I've tried to get as much of those titles available, uh, you know, onto the music server, but of course there's quite a few that I can't and, and quite a few that quite frankly sound, do sound better to me on the vinyl. Um, but it's interesting, I've discovered there's this entire parallel universe of people who are digitizing their vinyl collections in high resolution, usually FLAC files, away files, uh, 2496, you know, 24 bit, 96 kilohertz or higher. They're digitizing it, and then they're trading those vinyl uh, rips, we call them a vinyl rip, uh, among themselves. And in a lot of cases, they're trading vinyl rips of albums that you cannot purchase on CD or download. Um, and there's whole websites dedicated to, you know, these these titles. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to me, though, that that's actually growing, and you're seeing more and more of this stuff available. For example, 
you know, people will find certain pressings of a particular album. You know, the Beatles' Rubber Soul, for example. There was the original Parlophone pressing. There was a Capitol Records pressing. There's a Japanese. There's the Mobile Fidelity uh, pressing and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And so people will rip these different uh, vinyl pressings and compare and contrast and, you know, claim one sounds better than the other. But it's, it's a whole interesting phenomenon. The idea, though, is that you're getting it into a, a file format that you can then store on your music server for enjoyment. Right. And as you were saying earlier, uh, allowing you to uh, explore your library in a new way. And I think this is a really key point that I want to make sure we, un- we, make, we make very clear that uh, this whole music server idea, the Sulus that, that you have, others as well, lets you explore your music library. It provides a library function that's simply not available with physical media, discs, CDs, vinyl, and so on. No, in fact, uh, just recently, and I, I hope this doesn't sound like a plug because I don't, uh, you know, I'm a reviewer. I don't, I don't work for these companies. But Sulus has just posted a video on their website, which I think for the first time properly demonstrates how their interface does that. And you know, I've tried to explain it to people. I've tried to explain it through words or writing. But when I have somebody come over to the house and I turn the Sulus on and they start tapping on the screen they get it instantly. You go crazy. And once you do, it's almost, it's kind of like crack candy. It's, you just <laughs> immediately want to do it that way. And uh, I always thought Sulus's biggest, biggest problem was they couldn't communicate that experience through the internet because you either have the thing in front of you and you're using it or you're reading about it. You know, it's reading about it and, and hearing it described is not the same thing as using it. But they've got a video no. now on their, on their website um, I, you know, I don't know, I think it's on Meridian. Meridian Audio is a company that owns Sulu's or that puts out right. the Sulu's product. Right. So I, I don't know what the domain name is, but Google Sulu's um, and then navigate to wherever their video is on there that demonstrates it. One of the developers named Eno does a really great job of showing how it works. Uh, but, you know, real briefly, it's not something that say you can't do with like iTunes and some of those other programs. I use Songbird, I use iTunes, I use XLD, I use a bunch of different things. But what Sulus has figured out is how the kind of the music lover mind works. And they've built a software app that really is aimed at that behavioral type. And I don't know if, if it's universal. It certainly works with me but, and, you know, and the people I know. But it's something that iTunes does kind of, but Sulus does it you know, times 10. And mm. uh, I've, I, quite frankly, I've been shocked that Apple hasn't, in a sense, seen what they've done and replicated it because it's such a better way of navigating a music library and, and exploring types of music. Uh, it's it's funny. Somebody in the chat room, I've forgotten who now, um, uh, mentioned uh, the Grateful Dead. And they were certainly pioneers in essentially distributing their music for free, at least allowing people to record their concerts uh, without fear of prosecution. Uh, maybe they were kind of prescient in this regard a bit, huh? Oh, no, I agree. In fact, uh, yeah, when I was in college and in high school, I grew up in Palo Alto, actually, in a neighborhood where some of the Grateful Dead lived, as a matter of fact. So, uh, you know, there is that whole ethos. And and clearly what they recognize is you allow people to enjoy and distribute your music and it it comes back to you. In other words, you put it out and you put it out free and it comes back to you in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, you know, I think they certainly had the right idea in terms of distribution, and it's been interesting to watch how they handle online distribution, too. I haven't really seen them jump forward with anything that I would call groundbreaking there, but um, you can get an awful lot of their stuff through the the archives. You can download a lot of the live tapes. Uh, They make those available. Uh, Bill Graham Presents, of course, on his website, has tons of performances now that you can stream and watch, Uh, Mm -hmm. and this this is all for free as well. 
Now, one last question I want to ask you before we run out of time. Uh, on uh, Leo Laporte's The Tech Guy show this weekend, uh, we were talking a little bit about the issue of streaming versus physical media and so on, and he's a big streaming advocate. But with ISPs now starting to implement data caps, and in fact, uh, he, he claimed that over 50% of ISPs now impose these data caps. AT&T uh, caps you at 150 gigabytes a month, U-verse, their U-verse service at 250 gigabytes, Comcast at 250. Uh, you know, that's an, yet another impediment. Now, it's not so bad for music, even FLAC files, high-resolution FLAC files, but when we get to video, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be another real serious restriction. Isn't this kind of going in the wrong direction? Yeah, no, I saw that, and actually, it, it troubled me quite a bit. The first thing, of course, I did because I, uh, you know, I'm because I have the business that I'm in. I'm actually uploading and downloading tons of large files when we're, you know, we're building websites, and especially the media, we're moving around on our web properties. And so I thought, wow, this is going to really impact. And they have a uh, they have a web page. It's hard to find it. They they bury it, unfortunately. But you can go and see what your usage is. And oh, I was really. really yeah, yeah. So you can go and uh, they'll tell you over the last uh, three or six months, I forget, but since the beginning of the year, I was able to see what my usage was. So my cap is 150. I've got AT&T DSL here. And my cap is 150 gigabytes. And I think I was hitting about 60 or 70 gigabytes a month. So it was kind of like a moment there. But, <laughs> but, but what you're saying is correct in the sense that, uh, yeah, that's absolutely going the wrong way. Now, what's interesting to me is maybe this is their move to become the cable company because the cable company charges you right to you know download and collects money to download all this content maybe eventually they might see themselves as the equivalent of the cable company because you can download more than you, you can download more than 150 gigabytes you just have to pay extra for it right and, right exactly you know at, and at this point they're collecting that money but they're not distributing it to anybody else whose content you're downloading are we, you know, maybe, and I, I'm totally thinking out in space here, but maybe we're only a couple steps away from them becoming the cable company where now all of a sudden, yeah, you can download all the video you want from these selected providers for $10 a month, and it doesn't count towards your cap, for example. You see how that might work? Ah, yes, of course. Depending on who, which content providers they have agreements with. Correct, yeah. I mean, that's the same, same thing like, you know, I've got DirecTV, so they've got agreements with, you know, HBO and all these different things, so you buy packages. So... If, Right, right now, they've got me on. I, I go through the minimal package because, quite frankly, I don't like to watch TV. But the fact is, is that, you know, if I want to watch a bunch of movie channels, I pay an extra 10 bucks. So, and I don't know, I, I've not read anywhere that this is true, but I wouldn't be surprised if eventually AT&T may work to the point where if this streaming thing becomes popular enough and the video is streaming enough that they're going to start offering $10 packages for, you know, no streaming additional fee and you pay that 10 bucks and, you know, maybe the money is distributed to the content providers. I don't know. It seems like that's where it's really headed because we need more, uh, you know, bandwidth, not less. And quite frankly, if the audio side of it's going to work, we need more bandwidth too. You know, I've got yeah. an AT&T DSL connection here and I can, because I kind of live in the boonies, unfortunately. So uh, I'm well, completely Unfortunately envious. in one respect and fortunately in another respect. Yeah, but, you know, I'm completely envious of, say, for example, a country like Korea, where you've got these incredible high-speed bandwidth connections, whereas, you know, we're, we're talking 20 times what you can get at best-case scenario downtown where I live. And they can stream a high-def movie, no problem, in that scenario. You know, right. a, a, C, a CD stream is about 1.2 megabits per second. That's a stream of CD-quality audio straight off of a CD player, 1.2 megabits per second. 
So with my DSL, I couldn't quite do that, quite frankly. What I've measured mm -hmm. is I'm getting more like 700, you know, or I'm not quite getting one megabit per second. So, you know, that just gives you a relative idea. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Blu-ray around 11 megabits per second? Uh, it's up to, well, no, it's up to like 30, 30 oh, or 35 okay. megabits per second. So it's, it's very high. So I'm sorry, I, I, was, I was thinking of DVD there. I think DVD yeah. is around 11. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah, so even right now, we can't even really, in most cases, get DVD-quality video streamed. Uh, so for Blu-ray, I mean, in Korea, you can stream a Blu-ray video stream almost it, practically at this almost, point. Almost. A little more, it would be a little more compressed. Yeah, but I, I guess the point I'm making is there is that direction that the market is moving in terms of the bandwidth. I think the bandwidth will reach limits, and then we'll do something new, and then we'll start bringing fiber to more people and so forth. But yeah. Uh, I think I inevitably, yeah, but I think inevitably, though, the video streaming will, will run in tandem with that. And, you know, once again, once the mass market selects that they want to watch the movies through streaming, then the video files will start perfecting how that works and making sure you get a better picture, start pushing for more bandwidth. You know, it'll just kind of keep moving along like that. Mm -hmm. The future looks bright. Got to wear shades, huh? Yeah. <laughs> let's, well, let's hope, anyways. There's a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a lot of corporate interests involved that aren't looking to see that happen too quickly. I mean, this whole, right. you know, I, I don't know if we have a lot of time left, but there, recently... No, not much, I'm afraid. Okay, well, just real quickly, an interesting thing is that, uh, that uh, what is it, a, a six or ten week window of releasing a new movie uh, to, yes, yes. For, for 30 bucks uh, for a single, uh, I believe it's a download or a stream, it's probably a stream. Yeah. I mean, that whole move, that whole move is, is kind of like a little crack in that direction. We'll have to see. Right. Right, exactly right. And we will have to see. And we will have to continue this conversation another time because unfortunately we've run out of time. I want to thank John Iverson for uh, being a fascinating guest today. Uh, great conversation. And uh, please come back again. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Uh, you can uh, check out his music, John's music, at alternesia.com. And uh, in the chat room, a bunch of people have already uh, indicated that they are or will download it. There's a picture for those of you who are watching the video of the uh, website. And uh, my online homes, which John, in fact, administers, uh, are ultimateavmag.com, hometheater.com. And you can email me at scott at twit.tv, which now goes to a new email uh, account, by the way, which will make it much easier for me to get and respond to those messages. And you can follow me on Twitter at HTGeekScott. Next week, my guest geek is scheduled to be Barb Gonzalez, another return guest uh, who has some new things to say about Roku. She, she was a little bit controversial last time uh, for kind of dissing Roku. And uh, she has now looked at it again with uh, some different boxes and so on and has a distinctly different point of view. So sure hope you'll join us for that. Until then, geek out.